0: to present to you the argument that has been made both by the National Association of Realtors and the landlord lobby and those who have made these arguments in front of uh, the Supreme Court as well, that essentially the original eviction exceeded the authority the CDC had. But more but, but what I've heard from them recently is, look, the pandemic is not where it was in September. Yes, the Delta variant's out there, but this can't be a, a, an, a policy that's extended forever. So
1: now is the time to bring it to
0: a close. What, what do you say to that?
1: No way, no way, because we're talking about 7 million people, possibly up to 11 million people. It would be bad enough if it was 20, if it was 100 people, that would be really, really bad. It would be bad if it was 1,000, but millions of people will be out on the street, forced out of their homes. Hundreds of thousands probably have already been forced out of their homes. I, people have sent me pictures of what dockets look like that um, with with the names on them, of, of, evictions. No, this that is not good enough. We are talking about the highest government of the United States of America. This is unacceptable. We have to do better by people. And the other thing is this. People look to us because there is nobody else that can fix this. People look to us to make sure that there that that this is done. I will not sit by and be quiet because we want to talk about procedure and protocol and and uh, Let's just do the job to make sure people are taken care of. We can go deal with court cases. We can deal with the states. Uh, Aside from that, let's just get that pinned right now. Get the moratorium done.
2: Counterpoint. It can be extended forever. Uh, So uh, I am Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, I am uh, joined, as always, uh, by... Uh, the uh, full crew uh, for uh, this first segment, that, of course, is uh, Kale Brooks, uh, J. Andrew World, and the inestimable Kelly Carey. Uh, so um, what I want to talk about is, uh, before we, we start up, in just a few minutes, we are going to be watching an interview that I recorded earlier today uh, with a philosopher named Lillian uh about uh, a really a really good uh, essay that she wrote about how to think about class. Uh, but uh, want to start off with what we just watched. So this is uh, really an impressive victory uh, that uh, that just happened uh, due to the efforts of uh, Democratic socialist uh, congresswoman uh, you know Corey uh, Bush. Uh, who um, you know, started this protest camping out on the, on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's important to acknowledge that as a win, is a meaningful win. I think it's a huge mistake uh, to, uh, to like not count victories as victories because they're incomplete and messy because right now I've got some bad news, guys. Any victory that we get right now is going to be uh, incomplete and messy uh because uh the organized left and the workers movement just doesn't have very much power right now it's incredible that we've accomplished anything uh and yeah i would prefer
0: to just be right in my head i don't i don't want a messy victory to be honest
2: okay (laughs) (laughs) so um obviously the policy that you know the um uh I am disabusing, you know, Kale of the, uh, of the thrill of, uh, of being corrected in an uncomplicated way in his head. Uh, and feel a little bad about that. Uh, but I think that insofar as we are interested in changing the real world, uh, it, is, it is important to, uh, to acknowledge uh, the real victories when they happen. Uh, that said, it is messy and incomplete. Uh, because the left is hilariously and tragically far from holding state power in the United States right now, so we can pressure people who have power sometimes successfully into doing good things, but those things aren't going to be the things that we would necessarily want. Uh, and so in uh, in this case, yeah, 11 million people, possibly more by some estimates, uh, are not going to be evicted uh, this week. That's fantastic. Uh but the bad news is that on October third, when uh, the new moratorium expires, and it is more limited in scope, so some people, you know, are facing eviction now. But uh, most of those millions of people are not facing eviction this week. But on October third, when the uh, moratorium expires, uh, every you know anybody who's in that situation now, you know, maybe some people with the two month reprieve will be able to get together uh, their finances and and pay back their back rent, and they'll be okay. But everybody else is just two months deeper into Back Red Dead. Uh, and so I wrote an article for uh, for Jacobin uh, that, uh, that came out uh, a few days ago called uh, We Need a World Without Landlords that was an attempt to think through um, what we would do if we actually did hold all the levers of state power, which, again, hilariously and tragically far from the case, but I think it's important that we have an answer to that question, because if we don't, uh, then I think we end up in some pretty weird places. Uh, so think about what we just said about the eviction moratorium and how this is very good news, but it also just means uh, that on October 3rd, uh, people will be deeper into debt. Think about the battles that have been having, happening in California uh, in the last couple of weeks over homeless encampments. Which um obviously police crackdowns on these encampments are a terrible thing. It's a disgusting policy, criminalizing homelessness. Um, but also the status keeping the status quo, having people sleep in the park in the conditions that they're in right now, uh, which uh, which really are uh just awful um centers of drug abuse of violence of various kinds of crime and predation none of that is the fault of the people sleeping in the park uh, who are you know victims of uh you know late capitalist social breakdown but uh just keeping that in place yeah you can keep on sleeping in the park in these awful conditions is a uh, is a is a pretty uh, is a pretty miserable outcome too it's not as bad as what's happening the police crackdowns, but it is a close second, and we need to think about what we would actually want, uh, because you know we need to have a horizon for our activism about this stuff, that's not just okay. Given the miserable trade offs presented to us by the current system, which is you know which is the least bad option, we do need to figure that out, of course. But uh, we also need to figure out what we would actually want uh, if we were in any position to carry out our program. And what just asked in the articles, that start with um, not just a moratorium, but actual forgiveness uh, for, uh, for all of this uh, back rent uh, that was owed during the pandemic. Uh, you, and I know the counterpoint is that's gonna put a lot of landlords out of business and guys, I think that they'd benefit from the dignity of uh, work if they got jobs. Uh, and uh and the state could uh, could buy up uh that housing on the cheap uh and any any contribution people are asked to make after that uh is um, could be indexed to income uh so uh if you're unemployed right now you shouldn't have to be paying anything in uh in rent uh and uh and going uh, and going forward uh from uh, you know from that you know and you can have Yes, t- you know a taxation-based system to pick up, you know, to pick up the rest. And going forward, I think we need to think bigger. I think we can look mm-hmm. at what exists in uh, in Austria right now in Vienna uh, as a, a whole. You know, one of the greatest accomplishments of the Red Vienna period of the Social Democratic Party running that city, there is what they call social housing, either owned by the city or owned by nonprofit associations. That sixty-two percent of the population lives in. These are not concrete block. You know moscow in the 1970s kinds of apartments with three families lived in the same kitchen these are nice attractive modern apartments they're not economically segregated middle class people live there too uh, and uh if uh, if that's not enough uh if we do need some private housing i think you know i think tenant cooperatives uh you know that can uh that can get started with money from public banks can uh, can pick up a lot of the slack, because just having this class of landlords, this is the core argument of the article. This is the point I want to make before I throw it to everybody else. Uh, they having this class of landlords uh, that are literally rent-seeking middlemen uh, that you have between, sure, the people building the building and the tenants, between uh, between people doing maintenance work, sometimes that's the same as the landlord, often it's not, and the tenants, uh, bad news. It's bad news from the perspective of how organs as a society. It's also bad news politically, because having this class of landlords is why we have a situation where 11 million people were almost put out on the street last week, because this is a class of people that exercises a political influence vastly disproportionate uh, to their numbers in the population. So. I think I think we need to celebrate the wins that that we accomplished. I don't think we should poo-poo that, but also I think in terms of a long-term vision, you know, we need to be thinking about something fundamentally better, better and different.
3: Um, if I could just go first because I don't not all sure. of what I have to say is is specific, is necessarily specific just to this. Um, so, you know, so obviously we talk about all the time, how far our representatives are separated from the issues that their constituents face. And Cory Bush, this issue specifically, her having been evicted three times in her life and her running on, um, you know, her running on the 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 platform of, of being a person who, as you know, as a, a nurse, as a regular person who has faced like you know difficult economic circumstances and you know having to fight for uh you know a, a regular uh regular living situation for her children as a single mom you know she this is who she is, um, so she was on fire for this issue, and. You know, we all say this, and we we and we and we think it can make a difference and and I don't think that it ever strikes anyone really like enough how much of a difference it would make if our representatives really were on fire for every like this much like on fire for every issue that it would impact people. It, 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 you know, not just their constituents, but everybody yeah, hit the button for your socialist freelancers. Yeah. Okay.
2: Oh, so uh, just, you know, this uh, they're just being cute. It's just a way of saying like and subscribe, but yes, please continue, Kelly.
3: Okay. Um, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a, um, a troll, which we're happy to have trolls watch because it just adds to the numbers. Um, <laughs> So um, yeah, I mean it, it. It does make a difference if everybody, if, if if everybody that represented all of us wasn't just kind of like like dead inside uh, about like. And I don't blame some of them because I know that a lot of people go to Congress on fire for like some of these things, and then after I don't know what like ten years, they're just like, you know. They're they're dead inside by all of the 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 the, uh, the things that that everything goes through and like progress not being made and just like so much stuff happening and you know not being able to see any wins and you know just like you know like every time there's this kind of president, then the Congress rolls over into this type of Congress. And then, you know, every time there's this type of president, then it rolls over into this type of Congress. And then, and it's so predictable and it's, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, it's just that if everyone was like this, we would see real change. And like, to me, the only thing that would make sense would be if there, if we actually put, you know, term limits like real term limits and like had, you know, younger people like constantly entering, you know, and, and, and not, not to block out old, old people um, and older people and middle-aged people from entering, but, you know, I mean, like it, Dianne Feinstein, for instance, like what the fuck? Like, that is not something that should should be happening and is is crazy to me.
0: Yeah, Fein, Feinstein's going to show up to the the Senate in 10 years just looking like the evil emperor in Star Wars. It's going mean, to
4: be great. Yeah, because she, she's not just dead on the inside. She's dead on the outside, too.
3: Like, the, it, that's something that just shouldn't be happening, right? We can all agree on that. But there might be, like, some... You, but, like, for, as for instance, our presidents are getting older and, like, Everyone's like, oh, they're not all there. Like that might not be true of like some like seventy-six-year-old that wants to be president. Like for instance, like somebody that we all would have voted for, you know, to be president. Like they're all there. Like and it's fine, but um, you know, younger people getting into Congress is proving like very difficult for progressives. So anyway, that's my point there. Another point is that like for for this issue specifically. Um, rich people and 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 I'm I I'm not going to like give away like who, who this person is but a, a rich person who is a progressive uh, activist that I know like very recently I had to explain and like I'm not I'm not kidding like this person didn't understand R- truly I had to explain why it really actually very much mattered that someone we knew needed to get paid, and was really, really worried that they weren't going to get paid on a Friday, as opposed to like they were worried that that they weren't going to get paid until like the following Monday, and they they were like sending emails and like and like trying to like get it done, and I was like, I, if if like he can't get it done, I'm gonna I'm gonna venmo him, you know, because he had to pay his rent. And this person was like, well, I don't, you know, just pay the rent on Monday. And I was like, he will get evicted. Like the person that he rents from wants to evict him and it's due. And so like, they will take that opportunity to give him zero extra days and he will get evicted. Like he will be out on the street. Like, you know, he won't the next day literally have to like pack up his shit and leave but like maybe i don't know but like he like the person wants him out if he doesn't pay on friday then he'll have to leave so like he needs to have a check in hand to his his and it like it took me explaining it like a bunch of times because this person has never had to worry about money ever they definitely never paid rent never paid bills never had to worry about any of that stuff and like that's the situation this person person was born into and that's fine. I mean, you know yeah, why
0: don't why don't the poor just have more money? I mean, no, what's wrong not, with them?
3: It's not that t- a situation because like this person is an activist for changing, but they
2: just but they just literally don't know what it's like. Yeah,
3: they just literally have no idea why two days would make a difference. they They yeah. want these systems to change, right? They understand that like these systems are oppressing people. They understand, like, Marxist theory they understand all of this stuff but like why two days would make a difference and like why a landlord would like Like why someone would lose their home that they have It's like not everybody owns the home and like this person knows that but they don't get it You know what I mean? They don't get that like you actually you don't have anything else
0: yeah, but they they haven't read Capital Volume Three, so do no, they really probably, understand that's that? That's probably the main Sorry. problem. No, 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 no uh, right. I'm joking. I'm joking, but yeah, I think so, like
2: yeah, I, ben, I was just gonna say uh, the person who was uh, the chat earlier was from uh, Art was deep in history. That's Arjun, who is a friend of Michael's, who's been on the David Feldman show. Uh, says uh, a um, David Feldman, <laughs> so uh, funny. Kelly, 100% in society, uh, true sign of society in steep decline is being a gerontocracy considered nearly every historical example yeah i think i think that's probably right i mean i think i think it probably does like like these uh these weird sort of uh like creatures like diane feinstein who are like mostly dust at this point uh like still clinging to power is probably like a symptom of bad of bad things i will say that you know uh <laughs> youth and not having been around for very long isn't a guarantee of anything. See see Pete Buttigieg. And if somebody's actually uh tied to uh some kind of um, useful movement, you know, then then they could be they could be good forever, you know, see you know, Bernie or Corbin. But yeah, but, uh,
0: I, but Ben, I think oh, your example oh, oh, that okay, oh, please. Yeah. yeah, the example that you use in the article of Red Vienna is it's instructive for multiple reasons. One for the, the reason that's explicit in the article, which is that no, actually, we can have publicly funded, uh, affordable housing for for the public, and uh, we can provide it as a social right to people. And it doesn't—it's—it can actually be good housing. Like, it doesn't have to be slums. It doesn't have to be like decrepit. Um, it's part of the problem is that in the U.S., like when people think of public housing. They think, uh, they don't use the word public housing, they call it the projects. And the projects is a really bad place that people don't want to end up in. And I have a friend who lives in NYCHA housing, it's, it's New York public housing here in New York. Uh, and, you know, we'll post photos and videos of like just horrible conditions within the apartment that are not being addressed. Like in-, in It's so that
3: we, way for a reason. It's that way yeah. for a reason. I mean, it, it. I mean, the projects are are, are were made to for racial segregation and and just like so many other things. And and they're they're not totally racially seg segregated anymore, but I mean that yeah. that's that's the idea. <laughs> like, well
0: certainly you know? certainly at least like in the twenty first century century it's like racialized in the sense that people have a racial notion of like what kind of person lives in the projects. And so it's poor people, but it's also black people. It's like, the, like you get the uh, the idea of just like the lowest stratum of society ends up in public housing. Um, and it's, it's a horrific, you know, it, it is in fact like a bad experience for a lot of people, um, but it's also not the case that that is in fact what public housing is, because we have so many more examples around the world. Right I mean, I live, I,
3: I, like I lived near uh, 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 NYCHA, uh, uh how could you call it there it was a complex it was a complex but there was a school in the middle of it and it was um i mean i'm sure the the housing wasn't nice i i, I never went inside but it was it was it was definitely racially you know what what you would expect um but it was a uh it, it was there I, I i never saw a fight i never saw any so it was uh, I would have thought of them as like middle, you know, the, the school was extremely nice and like rated extremely well. Like I like I thought that they were sending their kids to like a great school and like there weren't like they were like getting like a leg up, like the, the, the whole idea of like what it's supposed to be for people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was like a night. it seemed like a nice place to live for families and like had uni- universal pre-K in, you know, the first floors, community center, you know, little like shopping center, like, had, mm-hmm. you know, it was nice. Mm-hmm.
0: I, yeah. No, and I, I don't want to generalize to all public housing, certainly, but there definitely is a certain stigma that exists in the U.S. because of uh, a common experience. And it's, again, what I'm saying is like, it's not in fact, the case that 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 is what public housing is, because we have both contemporary and and historical examples of a different way of doing public housing. I mean, even today, like if, you know, people were able to, and the problem, part of the big problem is that people cannot experience this because the vast majority of like Americans are not gonna like go and, you know, do a tour of public housing in other countries. But like, if if you were able to experience it in Hong Kong or in Berlin or in other, there's like other major cities that have done Successful public housing, and again, like Ben saying, like Austria is still an example. Um, like you can have good housing; it can be affordable. You can meet people's needs. The big, the reason why we don't have it is because of, of because of power, because of the amount of power that corporations have. And it's important to know, or just to to, to recognize that landlords in the U.S. are not there. Is very few like mom and pop landlords. The vast majority of property is owned by like major corporations. Uh, and so, I think the, the Red Vienna example is useful for that reason, but it's useful for a second reason, which is getting to uh, part of Kelly's uh, point a moment ago, which is the fact that this was a case where you had working class, uh, some working class, uh, some more middle class, but you had socialists who had the right ideological positions and, and disposition entering into office and, and pushing for a transformation of society, and they did accomplish things. But they also but just it wasn't the sheer fact that they had the the correct ideological position that like they got that uh, because they also ended up getting kicked out. They also lost eventually. And so I think I think it's certainly the case. I think on, on the on the one hand, Kelly is absolutely right, that like it does go a long way to get working class people elected. And it does matter that like Cori Bush is a working class person, the AOC prior to, to being elected was a, was a bartender. These things really do matter because it does actually shape people's politics. But it doesn't overcome the structural factors of, of the state, which is that uh, the way that the state operates within capitalism, the entire system, because the state doesn't start off by owning, you know, the productive assets of society because capitalists, own the means of production, to use the old jargon, the, the things that generate wealth in society, uh, they end up calling the, the vast majority of the economic shots that the state can say, hey, we want you to pay up this amount, or we want to take these assets from you. We want to reuse these assets for a different purpose. Uh, we want you to, uh, we're gonna incentivize you to build this thing or not do this thing. But it's always a request from the state and capitalists have the ability to say, no, I'm not doing that. Screw that. Like I'm just gonna withhold investment. And so that's the that's like ultimately what becomes like the the force that we're up against when we say, like, why why is it that we just can't have nice things in society? Well, it's because of the structural power of capitalism within the capitalist state. Like it's it's the fact that capitalists can veto politicians' decisions on these things, and so that's where I think we have to we keep in mind like what what Bush and 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 other the squad and the rest of them did is extreme. It's important. I think this is a a positive and good example of like a demonstration of a political demonstration and that like got media attention and ended up successfully leading to a, a better, albeit messy, but better political outcome. But ultimately, like the what is standing between this outcome and universal public housing is the fact that these corporations that control all these assets have immense power. And so the, just my last point on this is that I think Bush in the clip, when she's speaking to, um, uh, to Chris, she says, uh, you know, if you're homeless, like you don't have any other resources, like it, you don't have any means of fighting back, like it comes down to the politicians. And I think that's true for the homeless, for the most part. But it's not exclusively that, because the other means by which uh, we can, in fact, fight for better outcomes with regard to housing are tenants, our tenant organizers. It's that it's this combination of of organizing at the at the level of the the building, which is part of the reason why it's so hard to have national policy on this, because you're literally like, oftentimes the fights are limited to you know like uh an apartment building or something um and and politicians working in tandem uh to put pressure on on these corporations that own this property from below and again you'd have to need to coordinate across several buildings simultaneously which is something that people have been attempting in in covid like actually pretty remarkable uh to see how much organizing has happened at least like from my vantage point in in new york um, and then and then it's people like Cory bush uh, and it's it's having these two work in tandem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, and and I also just wanted to highlight your point about the projects because I because uh, the crucial difference. I mean, Kelly is totally right about the uh, the the racial history of the way that these uh, housing projects were built, uh, but also the fact that uh, they are they are and always have been economically segregated. Right? You know, you you there there's exclusively. You know, for for people, uh, you know, at, at the bottom end of you know of this of uh, you know, finan- you know their financial resources, you know, and uh, like all means-tested uh, programs, that means that it's uh, it's going to be something that most people don't think that they're ever going to need. Uh, sometimes they're wrong, but you know, but they don't think that they're going to need it. Uh, so there's not a lot of political pressure to uh, to have it be you know, well-funded and good. And, you know, I mean, quality varies, but I mean like that's a huge problem. And also, uh, and also like the people who are likely to be eligible are, are least likely to vote. Uh, and, and that in itself, uh, that in itself makes a difference. I mean, having this be like, you know, like in Vienna where you have 62% of the population, you know, lives in, uh, lives in social housing. Uh including tons of middle-class people, some of whom will wait like a year or two on a waiting list, you know, for, for an opening because the rent is so cheap, you know, then it's something that there's this like huge cross-section of the population perceives as being in their interests. And if like a conservative party comes to power next year and starts to, um, you know, and starts to talk about cutting funding for this or raising rent, uh, there'd be a huge backlash. And it wouldn't just be that like a, fairly politically powerless minority of the population would be upset uh, Andy do you have any thoughts
4: yeah I was uh, mostly just kind of thinking about the uh, the you know part of the reason why uh, uh, the you know the um, the projects are, are are tend to be run down is is in part our Protestant work ethic and, and trying to be like well if you want to you know have a better place you have to earn it uh, kind of thing and that's not necessarily true because I mean I live in a dump right now. Um, And, uh, you know, we got, uh, I'm sorry, I have absolutely terrible neighbors. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think uh, I can't even organize them to close the front door, let alone, um, you know, anything else. So, uh, you know, these are actually other problems that we have to deal with too. uh, You know, when we, when we organize, when we think about this stuff is like, uh, you know who's who actually willing to, to join in so I am quite glad that we have people like uh, Corey bush out there fighting for us um and you know we do need to have uh you know uh, more than just you know t- you know like like we need to be multi-layered we need to have uh because like part of this is also um uh there's not a place in the state that can actually take and divvy up some of these uh, programs um for, for like rent relief um and, and that's one thing that that's not uh, really talked about very much. Uh, that that there isn't um, uh, these. I'm sorry, I'm a little over the place here, but anyways, yeah, just just if you know, a bunch of random thoughts here. But there there isn't these people there to um uh, to, to to um you know to 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 distribute the, the 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 funds, and sometimes that ends up going with like you know Biden saying, hey, yeah, why don't you just spend it on the cops?
3: Yeah, uh, sure. So what is the plan for if we, if, okay, say, say that, I don't know, uh, one eighth of these people have like some familial place to go, right? What's the plan for the other people? What What is, like, if all the other people that get evicted are actually go homeless, What's the plan? Do no,
2: exactly. I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean, Silver Harlow pointed out in the chat earlier. You know that uh, you know you could, like the time when uh, half a million people on the streets was referred to as a homeless crisis. Uh, this this is this would be a ridiculous uh, explosion of that. Uh, but uh, before this is my we, uh, other before ri-
3: this is my other rich people thing. They think that like. Uh, and this is uh, the 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 person that said the thing about Mitt Romney. They think that all of the people have plan uh, a plan B. That like everyone has a plan B. There's like that everybody. It's like Tucker Carlson insists that that mother that guy insists on saying that every single homeless person is a drug addict and a mentally ill degenerate okay so they're 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 not they're all addicted to drugs and which i mean to me is you need help and they're they're also mental mentally ill and and degenerates so so they they need so they're all they're mentally ill and addicted to drugs so they need a lot of help from my in my opinion in his opinion and there was one segment where he thought they should all be killed. So, you know, so that's his solution. So all the homeless people should be killed. And, you know, I mean, is that the plan? Is if
2: we get more more homeless people would kill them all? I mean, I think certainly a lot of, I mean, there's, I think like, I think the honest plan from people who support these crackdowns uh, does involve a lot more criminalization and 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 ultimately like ultimately I think maybe murder. not killed, but I think a lot a lot of people, you know, would, would be going to prison. Uh, you know, certainly given a greater level of social breakdown, like Brazil, you know, uh, you'd where th- checks right with militia that actually do murder people, uh, then you know, then it might be a different scenario. But I, I mean I think it is well, important he's, to acknowledge he's, like, he's like currently the German germ truth,
3: Hungary. right? That they,
2: that the, oh yeah, no, we we can do a whole thing about Tucker Carlson uh, I, uh yeah. another time which 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 i would actually like to do but the uh, but um but i think um but i think it is important you know as as grotesque as as a lot of the things he supports are uh to to acknowledge the germ of truth lots of uh, lots of people on the streets do have drug problems lots of people yeah, on the streets course. are suffering from mental illness but the solution is that they should be given stable dignified term this should be mental health services and addiction counseling and things that would actually help people uh to get their lives together instead of just using this to condemn them and as an excuse not to do anything uh before we move on uh you know and um and do the uh the preview uh for uh, for thursday uh before we leave this topic uh do we uh, do we have uh, the other clip kale
1: everyone keeps asking what, what what should we do now we're gonna keep here we're gonna stay here until the rest of the work gets done
2: we're not buying the theatrics
5: we're not buying the theatrics
0: they're they're just one person.
5: no i'm not one person You're my one man person. right there oh we have 137 people watching
0: 137 yes. people damn they were just working really hard i think, they're hard. Hard. I think what
5: they're, they're doing is
1: reliable so doing? and i think that I Making was what do what what do you, what you, do you mean? What was to I do doing? You're you're to
5: informing you to people. Channel. You you no, think no. I shouldn't inform no. people? How it, am I trolling? Because you're sh- irrelevant question. Question. How is it irrelevant that they're I'm using gonna money? Me, I'm not gonna How is it irrelevant that they're using I'm money for speak. wars no. when they could be they giving money to the homeless? They voted for. they voted to increase the budget for Israel. No, they voted against. I don't even know what you're talking about. I know what I'm talking about. research you They use the. They increase the budget for israel and apartheid state at
1: home. No, they increased
5: the budget strategy, for apartheid, happen, in apartheid no state. idea what
2: you're
0: talking about I know, you. I know more than you i know more. all right that goes on but we don't have to
2: keep yeah on. yeah that's that's more than enough of that uh i just wanted to play this uh because i you know we, we were talking earlier about as complicated and messy as they often are as much as we do need to have a better long-term vision of like what a socialist housing policy looks like what we would do if we, if we could actually uh, get the program that we want and not have to navigate, you know, between the horrible position, you know, the horrible alternatives that are promoted by the current system. It is also really important that you see in a moment like this. Yeah. What Cory Bush is doing because of that uh, experience uh, in her life uh, that Kelly's talking about, because, you know, she has the right political takeaway from that experience, you know, like, like, like Kale's talking about that's, what Cory Bush is doing there was really, really good. I mean, this is like the best thing that any, you know, Congressperson has done with the platform that they get. You know, the sort of national spotlight that they get for being in Congress for a very long time, and uh, and this is the kind of attitude that you get from some people on the left, uh, which you know is this is an extreme example uh some uh youtuber i don't know who that guy is i don't care who he is that's not the point of this uh but uh some uh, some youtuber standing there on the Capitol steps while this really important protest is going on yelling out we don't buy the theatrics <laughs> uh at <laughs> some sort of like stunt for uh, to get youtube content out of it and man like there are things that you can do in left media that can actually be useful uh, for, you know, what we do here is not the same as politics, as, as political organizing, uh, that you have to actually log off and start knocking on doors and stuff. But um, but at, at its best, you know, this can be political application, inspiration, theoretical clarification, entertainment's fine also, but it should not ever be at the expense of, it should not ever be actually, um, like, Literally heckling uh, useful things that people are doing in the real world. So that that that's it. It's just a very small point, but it's like, just just don't be a fucking wrecker.
0: Yeah, I mean, like on the one hand, there of course is like I think a, a generally correct critique of kind of performative politics, where people will do some stunt or like some they'll invent a media creation, will get a celebrity to do something um and they say this is politics because we've like gotten a lot of people to look at this thing or talk about this thing and the reason why we dislike i mean sometimes it's obnoxious but like the reason why like that doesn't become our go-to on the left is because typically it doesn't really produce results i think what Cory bush and the squad did is a good example of like how to do performative politics to use the language effectively like that you like it shows both like the possibilities of you know of being able to like change the conversation around this issue um, and like get people to focus on this and to put pressure on on the biden administration obviously it also shows the limitations like that uh like the, we've said that like the moratorium was extended only until october but like that obviously matters a great deal so like the takeaway isn't like this was a useless bad demonstration no like this obviously produced results and that we should. You know we should learn something from that um and then also take away like okay but what are the limitations i think to ben's point like the reason why this clip is so obnoxious like it's not like it'd be one thing if someone made the critique i literally just made on youtube like i just did so it'd be one thing if you did what i did (laughs) it'd be another thing if like if you're doing what he's doing which is like harassing people who are who are trying to pull off a demonstration because they like he's not trying to like help advance that project he has no at least like i don't know what's in his head i don't care what's in his head like objectively like what he's doing is counterproductive to actual organizing work and you could again you could argue about like the strategic efficacy of that work but like you as a as like someone who's like a comrade in that fight should be like say, okay, I want to support you. And then we can figure out afterwards, like if this worked or not, turns out this worked. So like, there's something to be learned from that.
3: I just, I think I saw Ryan Grimm like right next to him and in the beginning. And I just, I don't support anyone screaming like that, that close to Ryan Grimm because his work to do people, get it together.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. like Ryan got him back on the, uh, and then I saw him like
3: show. all the way over to the other side of the steps. And it's like, hi, maybe you he can't hear right now because you just screamed in his ear.
0: <laughs> That's literal That's violence, funny. Kelly. It,
2: the, I know. <laughs> <Cool. That's laughs> all right. All right. Uh, we should, uh, we should, Oh, sorry, Andy real quick. Then we should move on. Yeah, No, I was just going to
4: say, I think Anders Lee was, uh, the person in the clip there trying to defend, uh, Uh, Ryan Grimm's hearing, so so you know, go go (laughs) Anders if that was (laughs) it.
2: All right, good job, Condre, Comrade Anders. Uh, I thank you guys, Uh, Andy, Kelly, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, so uh, I want to um show preview before we get to the interview uh, with uh, Lillian uh, Kacherkia for uh, the conversation that I had uh, for patrons. Uh, with uh, our good friend and, and my frequent co-author uh, Matt McManus, um, which uh, you know, in in some ways, it's a very uh, it's a very sharp turn in subject matter. But in a different way, I think it's not. Uh, you know, although the connection <laughs> might not be initially obvious. Uh, so the kind of launching pad, like the sort of starting point of this discussion that I had uh, with uh, with Matt. Uh, was about a video that uh, a very popular. I think probably the most popular um, uh, left-wing uh, YouTube um, man. I really hate the phrase content creator. You know that's that sounds so like lifeless and neoliberal. You know I'm, I'm a creator of content, but you know person who produces videos uh, for uh, for YouTube, uh, which is of course Natalie Wynn, uh, better known uh, by the name of her channel ContraPoints. Uh, so uh, Natalie uh, just did uh, this really interesting video that uh, that dropped on Saturday. Uh, some people who are watching or listening to this may have watched the impromptu stream we did to watch it and then comment on it. Uh, and it's called uh, Envy, uh, and it starts off in this place that seems almost like you know. I, I think some people were confused when they started watching it because it it might seem almost. Um, jordan peterson-esque you know in in the kind of psychological exploration of uh, feelings of envy and resentment uh but i think it went in really interesting it went to a really interesting place uh so um now granted uh i love the video but i am wildly biased uh let's watch the first clip
6: shook argues that the fear of envy is a major inhibiting force in many
2: societies in haiti G.E. Simpson found that a peasant will seek to disguise his true economic position by purchasing several smaller fields rather than one larger piece of land. For the same reason, he will not wear good clothes. He does this intentionally to protect himself against the envious black magic of his neighbors.
6: Now this kind of thing is not unheard of in America. Like, I've known people from seriously wealthy families who move to the city and they dress like
2: gutter punks. All right, so obviously, uh, like I said, I have a bias here. Um, I was I was in the video a few times. Uh, she had me read uh, a few of the quotes that were in the voiceover. I did not hate that, uh, having having been a fan of, of her videos since I think two thousand eighteen. Um, but uh, but I would have really liked this video even if, I, if even if I had not been in it. Uh, So let's watch a second clip, one that gives you a little bit more of an idea of where she is ultimately going in terms of the subject matter. I've noticed that working
6: class, non-academic socialists do tend to be more productive and more self-advancing, involved in unionizing or organizing, whereas it's usually people who went to college.
2: I went to college!
6: presumably because they had middle class ambitions at some point but whose middle class ambitions have failed, who become the great critiquers of capital. I mean, I can tell you from experience that when I was eating Chef Boyardee over my master's degree, that's when I was most likely to say things like According to Antonio Gramsci, in the logic of late-stage capitalism, the culturally hegemonic neoliberal ideology manufactures the consent of the civil term. Uh, so point taken. But some conservatives take this argument way too far and try to argue that the entire left is nothing but a coalition of resentment.
2: Alright. Uh, so that gives you a little bit more of an idea of uh, what the video ultimately ends up being about that uh, it, it's a um, literally feature length uh, video I mean really it's a movie uh and I mean not like a you know 80 minute movie you might watch on shutter uh, but uh, but a um, but like a marvel movie or something uh it's that uh, it's that length uh and in um over the course of the video I mean obviously it's just very entertaining to watch I mean the, the production value and, and and the way that the, you know the humor and the uh, and and the kind of intellectual content of it and everything are mixed together I mean this is something that she's always been very good at and you know and she's definitely at the height of her craft but the argument that she ends up building about it is about how this kind of concept, of uh envy which crucially for the argument does not mean the same thing as like covetousness right that's sometimes how we use the word envy like oh i envy what these other people have so therefore i'm going to try to get it too that's that's very importantly not what envy means in this context uh in fact it's it's in certain respects the opposite of the way that negative emotions towards uh, some people having things that you don't uh, is handled, if you're actually feeling envy, um, that so if you're uh, if you're doing something concrete in the real world uh, to to change the situation to get the things that you don't currently have uh, through, for example, material redistribution, uh, that's very much not a politics of envy or of resentment I'm not going to say the word in the pretentious French way uh it, that uh, that in the sense that Natalie is talking about in the video which she actually contrasts in the video to uh, Marxist uh, class politics so in this um in this conversation that I have with Matt today again it's going to be dropping for patrons on Thursday. Uh, we we kind of started you know, using this as the, as the this video as the inspiration as kind of the launching pad uh, for the larger discussion. Uh, we started by doing a deep dive on uh, Nietzsche's ideas and how they they relate you know to um, you know to what we think because uh, in, in certain respects Nietzsche is definitely somebody who is politically an enemy of a left project. Uh, there's there's a real like very strong anti egalitarian impulse in a lot of his writing. And then ultimately where we went with it though was how you can take some of those themes from what Nietzsche is talking about, about resentment and actually draw lessons from it that are extremely useful to that kind of egalitarian project. Uh, Show how in one of the examples we talked about in the video, like somebody like Scott Walker appealing to resentment of unionized school teachers in Wisconsin who had summers off and job security uh, you know, fit in with this Nietzschean point, uh, or uh, talking about um, talking about how thinking about wanting to avoid this kind of trap of the politics of of resentment in that Nietzschean sense can actually help us clarify, uh, you know, how to think about intra-left debates and how socialist politics can go wrong and how it should go right. Uh, so uh, we're just going to play a brief clip from this. Uh, that's from the part where we are directly talking about Nietzsche.
5: If you look at the kind of trajectory of Nietzsche interpretations, there's kind of three waves that we can talk about, right? Uh, One was an initial wave where he was very badly misinterpreted uh, by Nazis and fascists uh, as being kind of a proto-fascist figure, right? Mm. Uh, Arguing for the Superman who's going to lord it over other people. Uh, And he was interpreted this way, for instance, by Bertrand Russell, right? Where Bertrand Russell famously just denounced him uh, in his history of Western philosophy and said, you know, Nietzsche's philosophy is pretty much garbage. Uh, It can be summarized by that one line in King Lear where he says, I shall do such terrible things as shall be the horror of the earth uh, or something to that effect right? Um, And, you know, people like Walter Kaufman, who kind of pioneered the second wave uh, of -hmm. Nietzsche interpretations, really and very rightfully countered that, no, you know, Nietzsche is not a nationalist. He said they would never have gone in for the kind of biological racism endorsed by the Nazis. Uh, He was vehemently uh, anti-Semitic, right? Um, And he characterized himself as a good European in many instances, said some truly funny things about, you know, the noxiousness of German nationalism uh, and imperialism. So, we had to put that to aside, And the way that uh, Kaufman and others at this period interpreted him uh, was kind of almost as an apolitical, not quite mm-hmm. apolitical, but mostly apolitical, bohemian intellectual, right? He had these interesting things to say about art, he was a critic of moralism, uh, he had kind of these nasty barbs to strike against Christian conservatives in particular, right? Uh, and so in this way, you know, we could kind of recover what was interesting in Nietzsche uh, while dumping all these bad associations. Right? And then there was a third wave uh, of Nietzsche's scholarship, if you want to call it that, really pioneered by left-wing post-structuralists in France, people like Michel Foucault, uh, who famously declared in the 1970s that he was a Nietzschean. You know, it's kind of ironic mm-hmm. when you think that Jordan Peterson, you know, also likes Nietzsche, but called him like a postmodern neo-Marxist, right? Probably have a lot mm-hmm. more to say to each other uh, if Peterson never actually read Foucault. Uh, but, you know, this kind of interpretation repoliticized Nietzsche, but in a much more radical and egalitarian way, uh, where... They took a lot of the resources that were put forward in his book uh, to raise critiques of imperialist universalism, uh, various system, systems and structures of power, uh, and their association with various forms of knowledge. Uh, and all this was done for really radical purposes, right, to kind of emancipate people from ideology, discourse, uh, calcified ways of thinking, whatever you want to put it.
2: Uh, all right, so uh, I don't know if that, if that clip Gave you how much of a How much of a sense this gave you of it But uh, I really like this conversation I actually think that uh, This is one of the best um, You know This is one of the best discussions uh, We've done uh, for the show In in a long time maybe um, You know certainly top ten And and I think Maybe the best um, You know there are many many places You can watch me talk to Matt on YouTube On this show on the show he co-hosts, Plastic Pills, um, on on Jacobin's YouTube channel, uh, and, and I've had a lot of good conversations with him. I think this one might be my favorite. Uh, I, I thought that the way we managed to sort of go from, you know, geeking out philosophically about Nietzsche to having, like, a really good, really interesting political discussion that put together a lot of different things and thinking about in a slightly different way, uh, it was really good, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited to hear what patrons uh, have to think uh, when they have watched it or listened to it. Um, it's available in uh, in both forms uh, because this was this was fire. This was good. So, in any case, uh, just as a reminder, uh, if you, that uh, the uh, conversation with Matt uh, drops on Thursday, um, and uh, for uh, for patrons, we'll do a longer public preview then, but the full interview drops. On Thursday for patrons uh, so if you go to uh, patreon.com ben Burgess uh, become a, a GTA patron uh, you get uh, those bonus episodes every uh every Thursday uh, you get post games uh every uh, Monday night typically at 9 30 although it's gonna be more like 10 tonight uh you uh, after after the regular public episode you know, there's a uh, post game for patrons uh you know which uh you know often goes, you know, all the way up to 11, you know, when I pull the plug for the sake of everybody's sanity, Uh, and um, you get uh, occasional uh, Discord office hours, you know, group voice chats, you get access to that Discord uh, as a a discussion forum, Uh, you know, we've done a few Discord movie nights, Uh, uh, we're going to do more of them. Uh, you get early access to the monthly soprano's recap bonus episodes that we've been doing just as a fun extra thing uh with Nando Vila, Big Wise, Wasile Lambre and uh, Mike Racine uh and most importantly if you like the work we're doing here right like all of these things are just ways of saying thank you but the the thing itself right becoming a patron you know it's not a you know it's not a subscription service it's solidarity so if you like the work we're doing here uh you want to be able to you want us to to continue that and pay everybody uh, who does work on the show and uh, produce bigger and better things in the future. Uh, please do uh, consider being a patron, uh, especially right now, since this is uh, this is about eight days after I uh, I stopped uh, having a full time uh, full time teaching job. Since I, I did not renew my contracts uh, for uh, for this fall, uh, I'm going to be teaching one adjunct class, but I'm not. I did not renew my full time contract this fall because I want this. Right, what I do for this show, what I do for Jacobin, um, book writing, etc. I want this to be my full-time job. Uh, so, um, let's please do consider becoming a patron if you can. Meanwhile, though, uh, we are at the main event. Uh, so, this is a conversation uh, that I had uh, has to be pre-recorded for reasons that I explained at the beginning uh, with uh, Lillian. Uh, Ciccercia, who is a co-host of another really good podcast called What's Left of Philosophy. All right. I am now joined uh, by Lillian Chikertia, uh, who is, uh, among uh, several other things, is a co-host of a uh, podcast uh, that I really like from what I've listened to of it uh, called What's Left of Philosophy. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Jillian.
7: Yeah, thanks, Ben, for inviting me. Happy to be here.
2: So I should say uh, that uh, in case anybody's confused about this, this is uh, (laughs) pre-recorded because uh, Lillian is in uh, Berlin. So uh, if if we did this at the normal time, she'd be recording at like five in the morning or something, which is, I guess... You I guess she's just not quite dedicated enough for that.
7: <laughs> yeah, sorry, not dedicated enough to the cause, and my philosophy uh, brain fades at that point in time, definitely.
2: Yeah, very fair. Uh, do you, so, so beyond the uh, beyond the association with that podcast, is is there anything else you'd like to mention about yourself before we get started?
7: Um, I'm a postdoc in social philosophy at the Free University of Berlin. So I'm doing critical critical theory out here and i'm working on a book project that's related to the paper if people want to watch out for that in the next year or two it'll be called the competitive constraint and the subtitle is a critique of capitalist domination
2: cool so yeah I, i really liked uh this paper this is something that a um i think i would just uh on uh twitter uh somebody like, like it just, there was some other discussion that was going on and, and, and somebody and somebody recommended it. Uh, so this is, uh, this is it, uh, it's called, uh, why does class matter? Uh, and, and I liked it, uh, I think because certainly coming from the, um, you know, the academic background that, that I do, you know, in, in, uh, analytic philosophy where there are, uh, you know, this has started to change, and you know, maybe some good ways, and some ways that I'm not crazy about, also. But, uh, but certainly, like at the time that I was like a, you know, grad school or anything like that. Uh, m- like, unless you were specifically, like, you know, obviously there are people who did, you know, political philosophy or whatnot. But like outside of that, uh, it it was sort of uh, proudly apolitical. You know, I, I I think was the was the predominant, you know, was the predominant way uh, that uh, that it was. And, and certainly, I mean, I, th- I mean, for myself, I mean, I was even always kind of on like totally separate tracks. You know, there's like there's like what I did when I did philosophy. And then there was like what I did when I did politics, you know, and uh, and the two were really not that much more related than they would be. You know, if I'd had some completely unrelated job uh, for for a long time. Um, and there are, of course, there's always, I think there's always been kinds of philosophy departments where that's not at all the case, uh, you know, which is a lot of the tradition that you're engaging with here. But yeah. um, but despite that, I mean, you mentioned critical, you know, you mentioned critical theory earlier. It's just like, I don't know, there's probably no way to put this that that's not like obnoxious in its implications, but it's very clearly written. I like that.
7: Oh, thank you. You know, one time um, when I was a graduate student, the chair of my department uh, just told me that I basically didn't understand the English language, and he was one of these analytic guys. And um, you know, he was right. And so I've I've aspired to make myself clear, despite my um, critical theory training. So I appreciate that.
2: All right, fair enough. So uh, the the point of the the paper. Uh, is to you know is is to do the thing that um, like the debate that you know the debate that you're inter- intervening in is something that is the kind of thing that philosophers do. It's it's analyzing concepts, uh, but it's uh, but obviously in a very uh, politically. Relevant way, especially because in some of it you're engaging with people who are worried that people who are saying the kinds of things that you're interested in saying are class reductionists, uh, which which is probably a phrase that some people lis- you know watch or listen to this you know have have heard thrown around before. Uh, but but I guess maybe one place to start with it is just to like the big like the sort of pre-existing distinctions. In the in the conversation you're intervening in, right? So one of the first things we talk about in the paper is two ways of thinking about class. Uh, one of them is uh, stratification theory, and one of them is conflict theory. You want to un- unpack that a little bit?
7: Yes. So I, I'll actually take a little bit more of a step back um, sure. with the debate that I'm intervening in because when I start talking about different theories of class conflict. Yeah. Part of what I'm, or class, not even class conflict, is part of what I'm doing is making philosophers aware that there actually is a debate about what class is. So, what I'm trying to accomplish in the paper is to have um, a better idea of how class um, shapes a broader terrain in which various social oppressions and perhaps indeed other forms of domination take place. You can't do that unless you have a workable concept or a social theory of class. And what I started to notice is that people who would talk about class reductionism, notably feminist philosophers, philosophers of race, they seem to never talk about different ways of understanding class. And so what started to emerge um, as a graduate student, I realized that um, people had very robust and competing and different ideas about gender and race and what they are. Nobody had any competing ideas of what class is. And so I started realizing that there's this trifecta called class, race, and gender. And only one of those terms is um, underspecified or not actually understood as a theoretically robust problem. We seem to all just use the word class like we know what it means. Um, And if you take a step outside of philosophy, you'll find that there actually is a conceptual um, and social theory debate about what class is, and depending on which social theory you agree with, you're going to have different empirical results if you're a sociologist or a political scientist. Um, So to answer your question, there's a couple different theories of class. The dominant ones are stratification theory and class conflict theory. Class conflict theory is um, more similar to what Uh, people on the left probably know about when it comes to talking about Marxism or the socialist tradition, where you talk about there are workers and there are capitalists, there are employers and employees, and they engage in conflict. And the structural positions of these people tell you something about their interests, what they're going to do, what they have to get what they want, um, which is the way Eric Wright puts it, which I always find helpful. Um, but stratification theory is actually the dominant way of thinking about class. So if you're on the left and you are a fan of Ben Burgess, you're probably like, aha, I already think about capitalists and workers. That's how we think about class. Um, but the alternative view is actually the one in the social sciences that is dominant. Um, and it's a view of thinking about class as having basically an infinite number of types. So you can determine class by someone's income bracket. So everyone has seen graphs in which, you know, depending on what where you put the cutoff, maybe it's $100,000, $200,000, $300,000. People under that are middle class, and people over that are the 10% or the 1%. So you can imagine these bar graphs in which income will kind of create a different class schema for you, depending on what you're interested in showing. You can do it by education. You can do it by lifestyle. You can do it by access to various um, forms of what is called human capital, like networking and so on. So on. So for the most part in political science and in sociology, that's how people think about class. They contest kind of the variables to use Um, and class conflict theories, which are associated with the Marxist tradition and sometimes with Max Weber, are theories that think about class as a categorical thing. You have the the point of view I was referencing, which is that, you know, your structural position in the society is going to shape your relationship to other people. That's class conflict theory, and then I started. Um, yeah, we can get into other uh, points no, that I make in the paper. No,
2: that's yeah. that's good. So, let's, so I, I do want to linger on that for for a second. Um, that like first uh, distinction, because I I think that like one of the things that was clarifying for me about reading this is that I think that this kind of stratification view, like um, being. Uh, both oversimplifying and a little provocative about it you know like 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 you know it's the view that class is a spectrum not a binary uh, mm-hmm. but uh, that um, but that position and the way you describe it you know realize that I think a lot of people who maybe like their official position is the conflict theory like like if you ask them like hey Bob tell me what class is like what they and I'm, t- I'm talking about like people on the left people who even do left media or whatever. They would do. They would. They would give you the conflict is, and you describe it in the uh, in the paper that uh, that these are structural categories that uh, that people have. Uh, that uh, that there is this not just what stratification theorists are talking about, which is that uh, there there's this you have know, different life outcomes, you know, depending on on your class position, which is certainly true, uh, and and certainly cap- captures something really important about why. Like class society is objectionable in the first place, uh, but, um, but if you're a conflict theorist, uh, that's, that's not what you think class is. You think class is is that uh, whether you're in the structural position of being a worker or a capitalist or I don't know maybe some intermediary layer, and that uh, and uh, that, uh, that that workers as a as a class are dominated by capitalists as a class. Uh, that that this exploitation that this uh, that this gives workers a collective interest in in being a collective political agent, you know, to bring about change. That's what they give you if they if you ask them, right? Well, you know, what is class? But then sometimes I find, I think a lot of people, without quite realizing it, oftentimes when they're they're talking about maybe specific questions about class, they sort of slip into something that sounds a lot more like stratification theory because. Just it's it's so incredibly common in you know the social sciences and 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 among like political discourse outside of the left even that it's it's very like I think I I don't know I mean I'm just thinking about a discussion that I had recently on another podcast about um, what the you know like people argue about this category the PMC the professional managerial class and what that means yeah. and how it relates to being in the class. And, and that suddenly gets like that discussion very quickly gets like very very stratification theory-ish. So if nothing else, it seems like there's something useful about just putting labels on these things so so we at least know like what categories, we're, we're at least aware of what categories we're using.
7: Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that in terms of the PMC debate, but I think there's definitely something to what you said. Um, I, I want to kind of go back to the first set of things that you said, which is that depending on how you think about class, it's gonna matter to you differently. So if you mm-hmm. just think that class is lifestyles or a certain set of cultural attitudes or even morals, right? Maybe that's how some people describe the PMC. Um, the significance of that is gonna be very different than if you think that the class structure gives some these people a certain kind of leverage over others or vis-a-vis their employer. And the way that this has, um, usually been cashed out like normatively, like when we say what's wrong with capitalist society, is that um, people who think in terms of stratification theory think the problem is inequality. And they think that we're talking about relative advantage or disadvantage. So this is like most of the privilege discourse. Yeah, like this is um, people have unjustified advantages, arbitrary disadvantages, um, but it has a long history in the way liberals think about inequality. Um, what we want to do is get rid of the morally arbitrary inequalities, but other ar- arbitraries might be justified and acceptable. So that's what we debate, whether or not inequality is justified. When it comes to class, it's like the other view, class conflict theory, you're talking about domination, which means that the problem is that class exists at all. That's a pretty different orientation towards the kind of injustice that we are all discussing. And the second thing that you said is that the reason that like normative framing is important is that there is this really interesting thing that happens, that I think you're exactly right, where you talk to so-called radicals, people on the left, and then you seem to kind of all be in agreement that there's class conflict, and then you start to realize that you're not in agreement. and. I've about like the nature of the problem or the, the the nature of the beast of the thing that you're talking about, the structural issue with class. And I just want to say that I think this is a really profound thing to try to attack, which is what I try to do with this paper. Um, because this was most of my experience in graduate school. Like you read people who seem to kind of take for granted like The things Marx says about capitalism. You know, they read volume Mm -hmm. one of Capital, various other writings, and they're like, yes, this seems true. You know, basically there's a there's a class of workers and there's a class of capitalists, and they seem antagonistic. And then they repeat this and then they keep saying things like, but this can't explain. This can't explain. We need to go beyond this. This is too simple. This can't explain. And then you start realizing that um, there was a generation of people that entered the academy from the new left that kind of took for granted these like socialist leaning ways of thinking about class, but didn't develop them, evolve them, didn't remain interested in class. And so as the discourse prevailed, what ends up happening is that you're not talking about class. Class is just in the background. You're talking about race, gender, sexuality, other things. And then because you haven't taken a look at the concept you're actually mobilizing, um, You end up relying on a stratification theory of class anyway because for some reason that didn't get developed. And realizing that there's a substantive problem with that is actually probably one of the most difficult things about getting um, into these debates because people seem to agree that there is a class structure, um, but they don't mobilize any relevant idea of class that would lead you to think that class is actually playing a role in their analysis of the world. And so then kind of getting behind that awkward, wait, you said you agree with Marx, but you, you don't agree with Mark. That's like a something I'm kind of trying to hope to clear the air on.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think that um, I mean, actually, I, th- I think in a weird way, like you know, when I think back to um, discussions that I would have with, like, academic friends that were, long, you know, like, basically longer than, like, six years ago, because uh, there was this weird thing that happened in, in 2015 or so, and uh, uh, a very good thing, you know, but that, uh, that a lot of people who had been sort of, like, not very political or, 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 or sort of vaguely liberal or whatever, uh, who uh, – uh, you know, who moved, you know, moved to the left, say every that like good things, you know, but like like what I think about a lot of conversations in some cases with some of the same people, you know, from from before that, uh, they would often um have a very easy time seeing because this is part of mainstream liberal discourse uh, that there was something about um, uh, you know, like regardless of how they conceptualized it theoretically or if they had a theoretical conceptualization there's something about race and gender you know in uh as as they play out in american society that's bad and unjust uh and uh and then uh trying to make any sort of socialist points often involves sort of putting um you know really i mean i even think about like some of the conversational strategies that i would use and so some of these like basically just sort of trying to say oh well this this is like that right you know that this is this is a uh, this is the same uh, same kind of thing uh and and then uh going to to the present since you talk about how some people who are you know philosophers of gender race uh you know critical race theorists etc uh you know have this worry you know the second you start saying that there's something that's analytically different or important, you know, about about class, about uh, they raise this kind of specter of class reductionism, uh, which is always, like, in one way, is always, like, a really confusing charge because, you know, taken, like, what it often sounds like people are saying, like, in, in this case, like, stepping aside from the theoretical debate a little bit to just, like, it's practical, yeah. political application, but oftentimes what it seems like people are saying when they throw around this accusation of class reductionism is that you know is that there's some socialists who are just um, indifferent to uh, the you know issues about uh, about uh, you know like 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 racism and sexism and uh, other forms of uh, other forms of social prejudice uh, or or of disparities you know from uh, resulted from historical injustices about these things are maybe indifferent to them, maybe see them as like distractions, you know, from from class struggle. I was thinking well, okay, but who, right? Who, who really says that, right? Like like, like I want some names, because it seems like all of the all the socials I've ever known uh not like, you know, do not exhibit, you know, indifference to those things. But when I start thinking about it as assuming this kind of background stratification idea of class, then maybe I can understand A little bit more where the charge is coming from because if you say okay what are all the things that might shape some individuals um, like unjustly objectively arbitrarily having like worse life outcomes than some other individual and there are certainly stories that you can tell that are going to be accurate that link it to those other features that uh say uh that uh, you know this that if the individual in question, you know, is uh, you know, is black, then you know there could be things about you know the history of Jim Crow and redlining and you know ongoing prejudice by people, you know, by certain decision makers, etc. All of which are going to be relevant, you know, to seeing how this person ended up uh in a different position than than other people, you know, who who aren't black. That you know that 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 if we're talking about uh, you know women who have experienced you know in a certain contexts uh you know etc right you know then then again all these things can be relevant and if you're sort of saying well all right well i could see how those things are relevant and i could also see how like what the education or income level of your parents were uh, Unrelated to those other features could be relevant, and so that must be what you're talking about when you talk about class. Yeah. And now, now I can kind of understand what somebody means. And they say, "Oh, well, look, you you seem to be making this especially big deal about the last one, uh, and that makes it sound like we're not really tracking the other ones." And if, and so you're a class reductionist. And now maybe I understand what they mean.
7: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting. I'm happy that. The, some of the arguments I made helped you to think about um, that they actually might just be thinking about class differently than you are assuming a, sit, a different um, framework. I mean, if you're somebody who's a socialist, I think the best way to put the position on, um, so there's different positions. One is what are the cause, causes of all these different oppressions? And then there's what to do about them. So let's like mm-hmm. bracket um, the causes of all these different oppressions. Um, I think that if you have a class conflict way of thinking about things, then the whether or not the sum you can give a total theory of social domination that is just directly related to the class structure or not, um, what you think is basically that race and gender have a class ch- class character, that there are class differences among people who fit into those groups respectively um, or together. And you also think that you have to go through the class structure in, in order to create more social equality. And socialists have usually adopted a position that's um, you know, the experience of going through the class structure usually changes A lot of like people's biases, prejudices, um, you know, kind of brings to the fore commonalities that weren't there before Um, different norms emerge. Like if you're organizing your workplace, like solidarity and contrast to competition. And socialists have usually said that that is um, an important transformative um, goal, but it's also a part of the solution to a particular Problem, which is that the class structure creates inequality. Um, it creates differential kinds of inequality across it. So people vary by skill level. People get thrown in an, in, a, thrown out of work. They have to find new jobs in different kinds of industries. They have to relocate. There's a way in which, you know, the class structure creates heterogeneity. And the task for socialists is to organize people who are already very different, and to try to get them to see that they have something in common and to start to um, Think about common or even universal goals and interests, aspirations, values. Um, And if you see that that's the problem, that you have to go through that that, uh, set of obstacles or challenge those constraints as opposed to like going around them and addressing things Separately, then this problem of class reductionism doesn't really make any sense because it, you're you're talking about a transformative social process that has to happen to relieve inequality. Period. Um, but if you have a stratification theory of class, that means that um, you know the common thing to say is well racism and sexism they affect people across the class structure. It's not just poor people or working people that experience these things. It's equally bad all the time. Um, and then your social, your strategy for challenging those things is going to be kind of heterogeneous and piecemeal and addressing one group and one constituency and not another. And then it takes on the character of more like interest group politics than, um, a transformational politics. And so I do think that like what is in the background in a lot of these debates is, um, genuinely different ways of perceiving the problem. And when we talk about um, class reductionism, I just think that's a slur that's evolved to like slander the left since 2015, like the emergent and nascent, but weak social democratic left that has gotten itself more of a platform. Um, I think it's ironic and people should think critically about how that emerged right when Bernie started to run. Um, and you know think about what work that is doing to cloud to like create more fog, um, because what it really exists are not class reductionists. It's disagreements about how to solve the problem and different perceptions mm-hmm. of what the problem is. And if you stop pe- calling people names like reductionist for just one second and try to understand, like this is maybe mm-hmm. being a little more polemical, try to understand yeah. why you, what you think the problem is and what they think the problem is and why your perceptions of that problem differ. Then I think we'd make a little more more progress here that's my take on it okay.
2: yeah no i mean, completely agree with that i think that um i mean sort like a lot of what's being tracked you know like we use the word oppression a lot in these discussions which is uh i, I think a little bit of a slippery word cuz uh it uh cuz it 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 does it's 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 really hard to um, I mean, maybe this is just lack of creativity on my part, you know. And, and there is like a and there is like a really like tight and useful way of defining that that I, I don't know. But like, it, it's often hard to it's often hard to um, to sort of see what that means, except that like someone is being treated in some way that is in some way unjust. Like like that that that's that kind of seems like what oppression means in in practice, uh, which. And then, uh, and then people attach that to to terms, um, you know, like race and gender, in ways that I think oftentimes uh, there's there's a you know there's a slippage because uh, not because of course these things aren't extremely relevant to to like diagnosing where different life outcomes can come from, and in, in some cases they definitely are, but uh, because it's often unclear what the the target is. I mean you talked about like different approaches to solving problem, but sometimes those different approaches coming for come from just having a different idea of what problem there is to be solved mm-hmm. in a different place. So uh is the is the problem, for example, that um, you know, due to America's apartheid history, um, you know, black people are disproportionately likely to, you know, have uh, you know, to to sit at the bottom, you know, economic position uh, as as post-white people, but is the problem that anybody's sitting at that position? Uh, in which case, uh, politics based on solidarity, you know, between everybody in that position to to try to transform society would make sense. Or is the problem that the wrong people are sitting in that position? That 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 what a just outcome would look like would be if you know if every you know if every class of society and every social strategy, you know, within, within classes even was had exactly the correct proportions of members of every race and gender and sexuality and all that stuff, because depending on which one of those you see as the problem to be solved, you're going to end up with very different solutions.
7: Yeah, and this is a really complicated thing to point to get across. I mean, I'll just, if I can just kind of muse a little bit on like, why yeah, is this so confusing? I mean, so... Um, you know, I was just listening to, uh, Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels were talking about disparities and, um, they've been writing about this in the past couple of years. And I'll admit in that in the first place, I just didn't, it didn't see their point. I didn't understand mm-hmm. the the points about disparities because, um, you know, Adolf Reed always accuses people of, you know, if as long as the ruling class is like 13% per- black and, um, what, and, uh, what is it? sixty percent white, and then whatever other demographics are supposed to create this composite representative ruling class and parliament and so on, then then that's what me, you know, that's when oppression stops. Um, and I always just thought he was really oversimplifying things. Um like I just thought, you know i don't think anyone wants that like that's not what people are after that's not their professed goals um i think people really want a more radical form of equality people are aware that representation is insufficient but then and i think that people are in fact aware of both of those things but what's complicated about um kind of realizing that like the, the telos you know that the culmination of some of these um, the stratification way, way of thinking about class is actually a focus on disparity. Is that if you don't question that assumption about what class is, then it's like the logic of the argument starts forming in such a way where that does end up being the implicit goal that you have, even if you don't profess it as mm. your implicit goal. Like, what are we after? We want a proportionate number of people in every single job description, and it's been, um, and and we seem to be attacking the people that want to like. Rate like change the quality of those jobs or make sure that nobody is working shitty jobs. So then, so there is a way in which these logics become competitive. Like and and the idea of class reductionism gets used to um, accuse the people, you know, on the on the one side of not caring enough about what the people on the other side care about. And what is actually going on is that we have substantively ideas about how the world works. Um, it's not a more and and then the debate gets illicitly, in my opinion, moralized. Um, as opposed to, we simply disagree about the nature of the problem and the social theory, and like literally how the world works. So,
2: yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, I, I do want to make sure we get into uh, your specific um, intervention uh, in this this debate. You know, we we talked a little bit about uh, this sort of broad categories that you're trying to. Uh, you know that, that you're trying to sort of uh, bring into academic philosophical discourse about it you know some clarity into uh, like what are broadly the ways that people outside of philosophy think about uh, what what we even mean when we talk about class uh, you know so that's where those stratification theory and uh, conflicts uh, theory comes in but you know you, you also talk specifically about about your own approach uh, to uh, to this being, uh, practice theoretic. Uh, can you say what that is?
7: Yeah. So. I have. I decided that the problem with the way people thought about class is that they were not able to mobilize a concept of class in a useful way to inform their understanding of these other oppressions. And, of course, I'm addressing people who are talking about race and gender, but it could be any social problem. It could be the environment. It could be, like, just whatever you're worried about. I think that um, I started noticing that class was a kind of, like, uh, if you were to develop a picture in your mind of what people mm-hmm. seem to mean by it, I thought it, I started thinking about it as this like inert sedimented layer on the bottom of um, like a, a jar. And then we just kind of like fill the jar up with other kinds of, a, of oppression. Like we kind of fill it with, um, okay, there's a class and there's inequality, but then we add we add racism and then we add sexism and then we add um abil- disability and then we add ageism and then we add all of these things, and all of these things are going to affect the class structure such that we have this very um, uh, you know, heterogeneous uh, group of people. And, then I, and so then I was like, why is it that that's like the image that's happening here? Another image would be the multiple systems image where like you have the class structure is like one system and then you have the sexism system and then the racism system and then they all in- intersect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and at a certain point I was like, there is one factor here that is is completely static and not being used to inform the rest of this supposedly robust way of thinking about social oppression and domination, and that's class. So I started saying that there's one problem of failing to acknowledge that class can, um, like, uh, that there are other kinds of oppression aside from class. Um, And then there's another problem of being unable to use a concept of class to tell you anything else about the world except for that it exists, that it's there. Um, And so I started wondering what is it about the um, the Marxist tradition that was so that, that just wasn't very helpful in making this debate progress. That wasn't very that didn't inspire people to think about class in a more theoretically robust and interesting way. Like, why did people lose interest in this? Um, and so I started targeting the kind of structuralist ideas. So people like Louis Althusser, where class becomes a structure um, and it's kind of determined by what Marxists have usually called the forces of production. So like there's a kind of um, technological development mm-hmm. and class conflict happens inside of that. Um, and I just started realizing that there was a lot of work being done with the idea of structure without actually elaborating what we mean by the structure and like the people that make it up. Who are these people that are doing this struggling? Why do they struggle? Why do they not struggle? Um, and so I started thinking that breaking it down a little bit into um, something more gra- like tangible that you could grab onto like real human beings doing stuff um, was a better approach. Um, and so I started saying that you know class, con- class activities like any other activity in our lives are practices. Um, and I think that they're uniquely structural. So I don't think that they're like the same practice as like, I don't know, making dinner or whatever. But like you go to work, um, you are either as compulsions to earn a living, you have to compete with other people. But these are real individuals who are dragging themselves to the workplace. They are. They have ideas about that. They do this on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes they will engage with, with other people in collective action, other times not. Sometimes they take individual strategies. Um, You know, so there's a whole host of different practices that actually make up the class structure. And I started asking myself, why do people do some things with some regularity and we can expect them to keep doing it and why are they averse to other things? And then can we build up a theory of a social process of seeing developmental patterns in the way the class structure evolves? And so I thought it was like my way of resolving Um, some earlier theoretical problems with just thinking about structures like very impersonally, like they're happening over the heads of individual agents. Um, And I thought if we actually go inside it and we try to see what people are actually doing, for lack of a better way of putting it, then we don't have the class reductionism problem because we're already talking about people who have worldviews. There are norms. There's culture. There's all kinds of things that are going on here. Um, And then, you know, hopefully build out an account of like how uh, nonetheless people are still fit into the working class and the capitalist class and and so on. Does that help answer your question?
2: Uh, Yeah, it does. But I mean, it'd be good to to dig a little bit uh, more into the account and like how that might be different from what, um, you know, from from maybe what other people have thought or just or maybe just from uh, from like the. You know the picture that you might get. You know if you if you haven't thought about it much one way or the other.
7: Yeah. Okay. So um, when I started saying that class, um, the class structure is made up of various practices that have um, a certain degree of regularity. Like you can mm-hmm. expect that other people will do things, and that's how you decide what you want to do. Um, this isn't really the way people have thought about this because they haven't really. They've thought well if working people go to work, then obviously, they have an interest in joining a union, for example. And if they don't, it's because of ideology or racism or sexism, which could be forms of ideology. So something else has to like intervene. Otherwise, of course, it makes sense for them to join a labor union. Um, And I started thinking that no, that's not the way that this works. Actually, there are compulsions towards being um, very individualistic, keeping your head down, making the boss happy, not engaging in confrontation or conflict, fear. Um, And I also started realizing that there's also norms involved here. You know, what people learn to expect from their boss and from their other employees and from themselves is very, like, you know, laden with ideas like merit um, and what do I deserve, given that I'm working very hard. and the the class structure produces a set of constraints that people who have all of this going on have to respond to. Um, and so I think what I've brought into the paper if P- for the ideologically inclined is a sort of political Marxist take on the way that the class structure evolves. So I talk about individuals or groups who respond to the competitive strengths of capitalism. Um, and they respond to those constraints in very robust ways, either as individuals or collectively. And they have um, norms that they use to kind of understand whether or not they're successful, what they deserve, what they don't deserve, what other people deserve or don't deserve. Um, and what you can see from what I call the competitive constraint, that you have to compete with other people on a labor market, capitalists have to compete with each other, is an evolving set of patterns um, that are structural because they're not arbitrary, they're not random, they're not things you can opt out of. They kind of, they have an ob- objective character in your life, so they kind of seem like an objective constraint, like I can't do anything about this. I have to go get a job. Um, and you're gonna try to like engage with that structure and in doing so, you'll also change the structure itself. So like the, the if, a, if a group of workers doesn't unionize, then mm-hmm. um, the conditions of their actions are going to be shaped much more by the arbitrary sort of preferences or compulsions of what their employers need or want to do. And if they are able to unionize, whether whether, within a single firm or across a labor sector, then they're able to influence the direction that the structure takes in some way. And so the reason that my account differs from other Marxist accounts is that I'm interested in that kind of reciprocal Uh, Give and take between working people and the class structure So as opposed to just being an impersonal thing that happens over and against the will of any individuals I actually think that everyone is engaging in it Um, and Their reactions to it depend both on themselves and on how they react collectively and that is going to have really different outcomes so like in Germany where I live you'll have um, whole labor union like sectors of industry are organized and they can organize as one sector of industry. In Sweden, they can organize like across the entire economy with massive collective bargaining agreements. And in the U.S., you're lucky if you can get a collective agreement with one firm. These are the products of past attempts to engage with these constraints that were more or less successful. And the reason that I think my account is better, if I can say that, than other Marxist accounts that have been done in more like Social theory or philosophy circles is that I go inside the class structure to tell you about how, like the the, the developmental patterns will, um, how you can kind of get the, the the trajectory, like why it is that one group of people is more successful than another, um, and you can start to see that this will shape the society as a whole and the kind of cultural expectations they have. I mean the fact that the US is less organized, has a profound effect on what people think that they deserve, what they expect from their government, what they expect from their employers. And this has all kinds of cultural ramifications. So you don't have to like be stuck in this like way of, and I also think it's more empowering, you know, because Mm -hmm. you can't change it. (laughs) People can and they have, Um, and you have a unique set of obstacles that is the result of kind of past attempts to resolve Earlier problems and now you're inheriting the the sedimented effects of those past attempts to in, to solve problems um, and so it's just a way of thinking about class conflict and historical development in a more practical minded way than Marxists previously did I think.
2: Yeah no that's useful so I, I mean I guess I mean I think uh about uh g.a cohen has a paper called uh the the structure of proletarian unfreedom uh which which was liked a lot and and in there he he there's like a sentence where he like you know uses this you know he like says something that's like very quickly it's like blink and you miss it you know how um well, when we talk about economic structures we're really talking about uh, standard uses of economic power and then there's like maybe like one or two more sentences about it yeah. and that's it and, and he doesn't really get into it uh, but but I, I wonder if if maybe some of what you're saying here like tracks what he could have been getting at you know when, when, when he says this and and I'm also thinking about you know I say it earlier, you know, people sometimes will think in terms of, of intersecting uh, systems of you know oppression, whatever that is. Uh, which, in some cases, um, what we're really talking about is some combination of you know very real disparities and uh, and the uh, which are sometimes the past effects of like literal legal structures. You know that 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 uh, that once existed, uh, and in some cases, oftentimes, I mean, I'm not suggesting these are exhaustive, but like you know, in some cases, what we're talking about is uh, is is literally just uh, like well, I mean, the like the the P plus P formulation, you know, prejudice plus power, you know, the people people in positions yeah. of power, you know, having um, having prejudices which of course is a real thing you know and 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 is uh, and and there's uh, there's tons of evidence for that you know that, that like that that is that is real and has bad effects uh, but um, but there does seem to be something different about uh, even though both of them are can be described in that sort of diopathic level we're talking about as like uh, people who have all sorts of different motivations and, and, and all sorts are all sorts of different incentives, um, you know, making, making decisions and I say, okay, well, one of those motivations, if we're talking about people in power, you know, might be various prejudices. Uh, but certainly when we, when you talk about capitalist economic structures, there does seem to be something that's like a little bit different about, um, if only in terms like about there, there does seem to be a sense in which there's something structural about um those standard uses of economic power that's that that's that's different even though of course it's all about it's about it is about actions made by particular individuals making decisions for particular reasons but that's less dependent on the ideas on like their subjective ideas than um, just like you know acting on prejudice, like, like 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 maybe maybe one simplistic way to put this, you know, just to try to be clear is like uh, if if I um, if I'm I don't know an employer and I I'm I'm horrifically racist against Albanians and you know and 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 I just I, I'm just consumed with hatred for Albanians, I might you know treat people differently based on whether I think they're Albanian or not, but mm-hmm. uh, but if I like, in fact, many employers do sincerely don't believe in the existence of classes and think that we're all just free agents contracting with each other. That's not really going to impact uh, my economic decision making as it pertains to people who, who work for me. I you don't know, here's it,
7: um, it does, I think it raises a, a point that um, I'm going to cite David Kalnitsky. Um, moment for right now, because he put it this way in a paper that I read recently, um, where he argued that class is a structure dependent concept. Um, Mm -hmm. And other way other like prejudice is a belief dependent concept and so the problem is that these when we talk about these things like they are the same we are committing what philosophers call a category mistake we are talking about different things um in an in two different things in a way that makes them seem congruous when they are not um and the the problem with thinking about um like The the way you were describing prejudice and power and whether or not employers will, like, make decisions that are bigoted or not. Um, First of all, I think there's a great deal of historical contingency, and it depends a lot, a great deal on what you're, the place and time that you're talking about. Mm. But I think if you want to get an idea of, like, how, um, like, prejudice or bigotry will affect the development of the capitalist class structure, that the thing that you have to keep in mind is that people will have to adapt to it. They have to adapt to the competitive constraint. So you don't, let's like take race and gender off the table, just because those are more controversial. Let's talk about like religion. So mm-hmm. there are um, beliefs that you would think in various religions are not compatible with capitalist development. But lo and behold, they become compatible with capitalist development. The Protestant faith in the United States is like the biggest example of how religious faith just adapts to the class structure and then rationalizes and continues to behave as though that's not a primary influence on themselves or even, you know, bringing capitalism in to the whole way the ideology works. Um, So, People say, OK, like, for example, evangelicals are very traditional. This is a form of traditional morality. My claim would be, would be that um, what is old becomes new again. So in contrast to the way that, like, Marx used to say, all that is solid melts into the, into air. I think that's true. But a wet, better way of putting it is that the things that are old become new again. So tradition isn't what was pre-capitalist and traditional anymore. It's a form of ideology that, calls on tradition in a way that is distinctively modern, capitalist, and new. So things don't just go away with capitalism. This is the mistake that liberals make. Liberals think that because capitalism is, you know, neutral, it's identity blind, it doesn't matter, that these kinds of conflicts, that that capitalism will dissolve it. And I think um, socialists have often been optimistic about that too. Um, And I think that's worth, you know, Reinterrogating, because it's obviously the case that some forms of oppression—identity, nationality, religion—they remain salient. But I think that what people need to understand about the the deep compulsions that capitalism um, brings upon us all is that we have to accommodate it. We have to adapt to it, adjust to it, make it work, basically. If we hate it, we have to make it work. And then, um, and sometimes this happens consciously, sometimes it's unconsciously, sometimes it happens, but you don't even realize you're doing it and you're rationalizing it anyway. Um, this, so I think that there's not a good reason to say that all belief dependent constructs are going to be um, vulnerable to adaptation and change within the class structure in that same way because the competitive constraint and the compulsions that people have to do what they need to do under capitalism are very strong and that's why capitalism can tolerate a great deal of bigotry and prejudice and not care about it or if it wants to capital the individual capitalists can also challenge it they can also say okay no more of this, this is getting in the way politically um, but it's hard to develop like a meta theory of this because um, you know like so much historical variability and geographical uh variation and so on and so forth um but i think that if people understood that like capitalism is something that like has that kind of strong um those imperatives that it universalizes in the sense that it makes us all tend to those imperatives in our distinct ways then you're going to have a much more practical way of thinking about huh? So that's why racism isn't the same in 2021 as it was in 1960. Weird. Like, you know, that that's going to be um, the, the changes in the distribution of the class structure, the changes in the way that we relate to one another. They have changed, and therefore, so has this ideology. Um, and I do think that – I do think it is an ideology, but yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess part of, um, like, you said the view – and maybe we can kind of wrap up on this, but like the view that you're trying to, um, you know, push back against, you know, said in, in your original example that, um, well, if somebody is you know worker, it's obviously going to be in their interest to you know to join a union, and and if they don't, that's that's just some like ideology blinding them to uh, to to their interests. Uh, and and you want to get away from that a little bit, and say, no, like you know people have uh, people have tons of different uh, motives uh, that that could could be operative at, at any given time. Uh, you know, some of them are the sorts of things that are naturally described as ideology. Some of them are are like in some short term or 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 really like particular sen- you know context seem pretty rational, right? You know, like 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 I don't um, I think I'd be better off, you know, making an accommodation for myself, you know in in this uh, in this circumstance. Uh, but you you do obviously still think uh, that there is a a strong sense in which everybody who experiences class domination, has a collective interest in overcoming that domination. And I think some things you've already said kind of like show how those two can be squared. But maybe like in the last couple of minutes, just like a little bit more explicitly, can you speak to that?
7: Yeah. So the the thing that I am sort of trying to work out um is I'm trying to make sense. Of some disillusionment that people have had in the past and I think currently have with class politics. So earlier generations of Marxists thought that basically class solidarity was something, even if it was difficult, and even if they knew very well that they had to work very hard to organize people in their workplaces, um, these uh, earlier generations were confident and optimistic about the, the, pro- the progression of that process. They thought that people would increasingly show solidarity with one another. And um, I don't, I don't want to undersell the accomplishments of the, the labor movement, but it's also obviously after 50 years of neoliberal retrenchment, we see that um, especially in the United States, there's a real hesitancy on the part of workers to fight. And in fact, there was a whole generation of people that were like, hmm, workers, like, they're pretty conservative, aren't they? Like, uh, maybe they're not, they don't have the revolutionary capacities that we we hoped. Maybe they're too, you know, ideologically in, indoctrinated or interpolated in Alta language. Or um, maybe they're just Uh, Consumeristic, and you know, they have their homes in the sub, their prefab homes in the suburbs, and they they don't have any interest in more radical politics anymore. And therefore, the working class is not the agent of change. Um, And also, people just seem averse to doing this. So, this way of thinking, the class conflict way of thinking, is outdated. Making claims about self determination of working people is therefore kind of anachronistic, it's a thing of the past. Um, And I argue that this sort of sells the whole problem pretty short, because just because there isn't an automatic affinity among workers of any race, any gender. Like, I mean, I, I think that that's part of the intervention I make is that divisions among workers and hesitancy to engage in solid or strict action is not only caused by these factors that, um, these supervening factors like race and gender, there are internal tendencies within the labor market to divide people, to make people fearful, to make people unwilling, to participate in collective action. Um, so if we take that as the starting point, that actually it's not the case that people will automatically engage in solidarity, does that mean that there's not a good reason to do it? And I think the answer is no. I I think that there is a good reason to do it. Um, I think that the reason is exactly the same as it always has been, we're just less optimistic About it now. And I think that the reason is that working people are collectively and jointly vulnerable to the arbitrary power of employers in a way that um, is pretty distinct for a social group. So, if you think about the way that capitalist production is constantly changing, that as you know, Bob Brenner always says that you can, there are the primary imperatives are to compete for market shares and then move from line to line of, you know, move production sites, move to different industries, make different investments. If you can't retain the rate of profitability that you need, um, this the kind of effect that that kind of dynamic and competitive system has on people who literally depend on that, th- those very people who are making those decisions for their livelihood. Um, that's what I call labor market dependency. This is a form of vulnerability that cannot be, re- cannot be understood in an individual way. It has to be understood by the vulnerability of the class because the only way that you can rectify any part of that is through collective action. Your your response to your own vulnerability, like how that's gonna work out for you, depends on how you respond with other people. That is not something that other social classes have to do. It is something that workers have to do. And because these people the capitalist class have this arbitrary power over their lives, I think you can call it a a claim to self-determination to say, you you can't just move my plant. You can't just fire people who have built their whole lives around, you know, I'm from Illinois. We have like Caterpillar and, Mm -hmm. you know, these Uh, Plants where people work and now you just have these little like poor communities We call them river people now because they just live there. You can't do that to people You can't just fire people and then they build their whole communities up around these areas And then you just get rid of them like they're garbage That's a lack of self-determination that people don't have and it's something that people are affected by Differentially depending on skill level geography um, Demographics, but the only way that you can challenge that is as a whole which is why um, places like Sweden and Germany have stronger um, worker protections because they have a higher aggregate level of collective bargaining on the part of labor.
2: That is a really good place to uh, to end. I think uh, that's that's a I think the the perfect note in terms of uh, of bringing it uh, back back around to uh, to the 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 sort of most important you know political uh, takeaways of all this. Uh, so uh so yeah uh thank you uh yeah. thank you so much uh uh Lillian Chikertia.
7: yeah chicherkea thanks
2: Chekea Chicherkia, I will get it right uh mm-hmm. for the first of what i hope uh, are uh our many appearances so i can keep practicing the uh, the surname uh That's so great. thank you so much
7: yeah thanks Ben
2: all right that was Lillian Cherkia uh, I think uh, but uh was it was a great interview uh really uh really excited about um, you know discovering uh Lillian uh, as a, uh, as a guest uh not that she hasn't you know been on other shows and whatnot you know wasn't a co-host of a show but my discovery of her as a uh, as, as a guest for this show uh, I'm really excited about i really do hope that she comes back many times uh, I think she's the best new to this show uh guest in, in a while so uh that was really that was a really good interview uh kale and i are going to have lots of thoughts about that in uh the uh in the post game um so that is uh going to start in uh just a couple minutes uh patrons uh, should already have the link if you didn't get the email some i had somebody go tell me the, you want to get the email, but just go to patreon.com and you know you, you should see it there. Um, and uh, we are, you know, we were going to do uh, a little bit of uh, James Lindsay Seeing Marxists under the bed uh, during the uh, during the main show, uh, but we ran out of time for that. So maybe we'll get to that in the uh, in the post game. Uh, we're also obviously going to talk about that great interview uh, that we uh, that we just watched. Um, and uh, we are uh, uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, right wing populism and uh, and uh, update on uh, Charlie Kirk. So I hope uh, that we get to all that uh, in uh, in the hour that we have left for the post game. Uh, but we're going to get to uh, as much of it as possible. Um, we'll uh, see people uh, see people there. Don't forget to uh, to hit like and subscribe and become a Patreon uh, if you possibly can uh kale do you have something you want to throw in
0: no that sounds good you should come watch us we're gonna talk about like cohen and and uh ellen meissons woods and uh and brenner chibber shake botwinnick if you know what i'm talking about then maybe you don't need to watch it but i'm guessing a lot of you probably do need to watch this so we're gonna get into all the all the best all the best friends on the left
2: (laughs) yeah i only know about about half of what he's talking about so uh I'm excited for it. Uh, So uh, we will uh, see everybody there in just a minute. Left is best.
0: Left is best. Good night.